0: Well, if you've got your Bible, meet me in Genesis chapter 14. Genesis chapter 14. uh, If you don't have a Bible, we have one for you. Right over there on that table, you can go grab it and keep it. That's our gift to you as a church. Now, while you're turning there, I'll just tell you up front, I'm going to throw you Lord of the Rings fans a bone this morning. Um, Harry Potter is still objectively better, and look, I think you know that, uh, but Uh, The text that we're about to read looks a whole lot like a battle from the Lord of the Rings. Like you've got all these random kings making alliances with all these other kings and going to battle in all these weird places. And we're going to read it and you're going to wonder like, why in the world is this in the Bible? Like, what is this even talking about? And to be honest, uh, man, if we did not believe, if I did not believe what 2 Timothy says, that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for us, that God uses it to transform us and make us more like Jesus. Uh, If I didn't believe that, and we didn't preach through books of the Bible because of that, uh, this text is not one that I would probably pick as just a one-off on a Sunday. Like, yeah, I want to preach Genesis 14 this week. But as as I've studied, as I've kind of dug into it, I I really do believe God has so much to say to us this morning uh, from this passage. And so let's read this passage together, this really weird passage of Scripture, and see what God might have to say to us in it. Genesis 14, starting in verse 1, we'll read through the entire chapter. The Word of God speaks to us this morning like this. It says, In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, he was the first crossfitter. Uh, think about it a little bit, it'll come to you. Uh, Arioch, king of Elasar, Keterlamer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim. These kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, shem king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served keter but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, keter and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim and Ashtaroth-Karnaim, the Zuzim and Ham, the Emim and Shavah-Kiriothim, and the Horites in their hill country of Ser, as far as El Peron on the border of the wilderness." Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazon Tamar. This is why you guys pay me uh, to have to read these names on a Sunday morning. Uh, Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and they joined battle in the valley of Sidom with Keterlamer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariot, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddam was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abraham's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions, and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eshkel and Aner. These were allies of Abraham. When Abraham heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. He divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. After his return from the defeat of Keterlamar and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheveh, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abraham, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abraham said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abraham rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let at Eshkol and Mamre take their share." All right, so the text uh, kicks off with this battle. Uh, King Cheddar and his crew, he's kind of formed an alliance with these three other kings, and King Cheddar's the top dog. He's ruling over everybody in the region, and it's going well for about 12 years, and then in the 13th year, they get tired of him ruling over them, uh, and so they rebel against him and go to war against these kings, and they just get the smackdown put on them, right? right. Like, no one can defeat these guys. They're just working over everybody. So after they win one battle, uh, five other kings get together, form an alliance, and go out to fight against these kings. And they also get the smackdown put on them. Like, no one can beat King Cheddar and his crew. And and so they put this beatdown on them. And after that, they take all the men, women, and children and stuff from these defeated kings and from these defeated nations back to their regions, and and that's when we find out why we're even being told this story, uh, because verse twelve tells us that Lot is now dwelling in Sodom. Now, if you remember last week, chapter thirteen, it told us that Lot moved his tents as far as Sodom, so he was kind of on the outskirts of Sodom. Now he's actually dwelling in Sodom. Uh, he. he, Lot is kind of like the man that Psalm 1 warns us not to be who first uh, walks in the way counsel of the wicked. Then he stands with the sinners. And finally, he sits in the seat of scoffers. We'll see by the time we get to chapter 19, Lot has become a respected member of the city of Sodom sitting at the gate. Like It's this progression deeper and deeper into sin and becoming more and more comfortable with it. And I think Moses is highlighting this and drawing it out to warn us not to do the same thing. It is so easy to just let our guard down and become comfortable with sin and start rationalizing and justifying why we can take one step further than last time, but listen, that's such a dangerous game to play. Like when you find yourself doing this, when you find yourself compromising on things you hadn't compromised before and justifying and rationalizing why it's not so much of a big deal anymore, why you can go one step further than you did last time, when you realize that God is giving you an opportunity to repent and turn around and stop going that way, to repent and come back to Jesus before it's too late, because that path only leads to destruction. And so Lot is doing this. He's now dwelling in Sodom. And so when they defeat the king of Sodom and take all of his stuff, Lot gets captured as a prisoner of war, and someone escapes from the battle and comes and tells Abraham, uh, and you've got to imagine, at least I've got to imagine, that Abraham hears this and he kind of just looks down and puts his head in his hands and just kind of shakes his head like, Lot, what were you thinking? you got a brain, don't you? Like, are you serious, Clark? Lot, I'm 80 years old. Just let me watch TV in peace. Now, listen, uh, let, let's just remember, like, Abraham doesn't have to do anything about this, right? Abraham could easily say in this moment, look, Lot, he didn't believe the promises of God. He didn't want to be around me. He separated from me. And his own foolishness got him into this mess. You play stupid games, you win stupid prizes. Like That's how this thing goes. Lot, you're on your own. That's what he could have done, but he didn't do that. Right, He gets his 80-year-old self out the door, and he leads out as the commander of an army. The story is so wild. He leads out a co- as commander of the army 318 men born in his house that he trained, uh, and he's got this great strategy, and they go out and they rout these kings and their armies, and they get everything back from them. It's just a wild, wild story. And so before we move on from this battle, I think there are a few things for us to draw out here from this battle. And the first is that different situations call for different types of faith. And what I mean by that is if you think back to last chapter, Abraham's faith looked really passive, right? In the sense of he just trusted God and his promise, so he kind of took his hands off and let Lot take first choice of the land. But here in chapter 14, his faith looks a whole lot more active, right? Like he trusts God in his promise that God's going to make him and his offspring a blessing to the world. He knows God's going to protect him. And so he leads forth an army in war to go get Lot back from these people. And, And he has made decisions, right? Like he has men that he trained. He has a strategy as to how they're going to do this. He's put thought and foresight into it, right? Like they split off at night and they go and attack at night to surprise these guys because they're so vastly outnumbered. You can tell he's put thought and planning and foresight into this instead of just sitting on his hands. And so walking by faith calls for different things in different situations. I think sometimes we get the idea that real faith in God is always passive. It's always this kind of let go and let God like Abraham's was in chapter 13, but this is showing us that that isn't the case. Listen, a lot of times faith in God is I trust God and his promises, so I'm going to take a step here instead of just sitting back on my hands. Like a lot of times waiting on the Lord looks like being doing everything you can to be as prepared as possible for what you're waiting on when the wait is over. And so for example, like if you feel like God is calling you into something, the way to respond to that calling is to be as prepared as possible and to take the steps you feel like you need to take to be prepared for that calling. And so if you feel like God is calling you to be a doctor, like you should take the steps to go to pre-med and med school instead of just saying, oh, I'll just wait until a hospital calls me with a job offer. Like if you want to write in some sense, if God is calling you to write to serve the church in some way, You should start writing as much as you can, even if people aren't reading it, instead of not doing any of that and just saying, I'll just wait till like a blogger or a publisher uh, hears about me and picks me up. If you're single right now and you feel like God is one day calling you to be married and you're addicted to pornography, you're looking at pornography, you should be doing everything you can to get help and get accountability and walk with people and put that sin to death and experience victory over it instead of just saying, Oh, I'll just wait till I get married, because that's going to fix it. That, that's not going to fix it. And, and so walking by faith, a lot of times, looks like planning and preparing and being thoughtful and, and taking these steps. Different types of situations call for different types of faith, which requires discernment as to whether God is calling us to respond like Abraham in chapter 13, or like Abraham in chapter 14. And then the second thing I want us to draw out from this battle is just real simply that God keeps his promises. Like nobody can stop God from fulfilling and accomplishing his promises because he is the one who accomplishes them. I mean, think about this. This is really why the story is here in the life of Abraham. The promise is in jeopardy here. Because if these kings, are doing this around the promised land, but if these kings can come into the promised land and raid it and take The family members of Abraham, whenever they want to, as easily as they were doing, how are Abraham and his family ever going to feel secure in the land that God promised them? How how are these promises ever going to come to pass? But Abraham is able to defeat this army, even though he is vastly outnumbered, because God is the one fighting the victory, winning the victory here. God is the one fighting for him. God protects him. Like, God is the hero in this story, not Abraham. Nothing can stop God from saving by many or by few. He is the one that wins the victory. You see, this shows us that God is the God who fights for us. Now listen, that does not mean that we, God will just kind of ensure that we get whatever we want and He'll help us kind of fulfill our destiny or He'll help us just kind of bless off on whatever decision we make. That's not what this means at all, but what it does mean is that nothing can stop God from fulfilling His purposes and bringing His good promises to pass in your life. But God is for us, and just like Abraham, nothing can stop Him from accomplishing His promises and fulfilling His purposes, and so we have every reason to trust Him. He's worthy of our trust. And so if that's the battle, uh, the next thing we see in this text is the blessing. Uh, after Abraham fights this battle and he wins and brings all this stuff back, he's met by the king of Sodom and by a guy named Melchizedek. And, and this is where things get a little bit weird. Right, we find out that king Melchizedek is the king of Salem, which is what will later become Jerusalem, uh, and that he's a priest of God Most High. That's Yahweh. That's Abraham's God. Like, notice how him and Abraham use the same sort of terms to refer to God. This is Abraham's God. And so, you've got this dude from kind of out of nowhere who's a king, and he's also a follower of Yahweh. But he's not just a follower of Yahweh, he is a priest of Yahweh. He is God's priest. And he blesses Abraham, and Abraham gives him a tenth of what he has. Now, we're going to come back to him because there's a whole lot to unpack here with Melchizedek. But after Melchizedek, the king of Sodom comes out to meet Abraham. And uh, he's much more of a jerk, right? Because think about this. He has no leverage to bargain with here. What just happened to the king of Sodom? He just got whooped by these kings, right? And got everything taken from him. The only reason he has his stuff right now is because Abraham got it back from him. He has no chips to play. He has nothing to bargain with. He is completely in Abraham's debt, but yet he's trying to do this deal like, Abraham, you give me back my people and you can take the spoils. Like he has no room to bargain here. He's like the guy, he's like the fan who sits in the stands and talks trash to the players on the other team. Like dude, you sat the bench on your freshman team when you were a senior in high school. You have no argument here. Just sit back down. And so the king of Sodom does this. But but look at what Abraham does in response. He says, I have sworn an oath to God that I would not take as much as a strap of a sandal from you so that no one would get confused on who really won the victory here today and who's really blessing me. You see, even though this isn't the case, if Abraham takes the spoils from the king of Sodom, the king of Sodom is going to go off and tell people, hey, the reason that Abraham is blessed, the reason that Abraham is rich is because I made him that way, not because of God. And so Abraham doesn't take any of the spoils, but that's not all that he does. He says, I'm not going to take anything more than the food my men have already eaten, but you let my friends have their share. You see, these three ally, allies of Abraham, Honor, Eshkol, and Mamre, they are not followers of Yahweh. They, they do not follow Abraham's God, and so Abraham doesn't impose his standards and convictions on them. He doesn't try to get them to do what he does right cuz they didn't swear an oath to Yahweh that they wouldn't take any of this stuff right and so he doesn't make them do what he does he doesn't try to impose this on them and i think this gives us a really good picture of what our evangelism should look like look we are not trying to get people who are not yet followers of Jesus to live like followers of Jesus we are not trying to impose our morality on them because our goal is not to make people moral There are a lot of really good moral people who are going to go to hell because they don't believe in Jesus. Our our goal is to point people to Jesus, to show people Jesus, because if they believe in Jesus and he saves them, they will change. Their lives will look different. And Abraham understands this, so he doesn't try to impose his convictions on them. He just lives out his faith in front of them. I mean, think about how countercultural what Abraham just did here had to have been. They just won this epic victory and got all these spoils back, and yet he's not going to take any of it? Like, who does that? I'll give you a hint. No one in this time would have done that. You think that doesn't provoke some conversations among Abraham and his friends when they're like, hey, Abraham, you earned this stuff. This is yours. Why are you not taking this? And then Abraham, in response, is able to say, well, well, I follow a God named Yahweh And he's the creator of the heavens and the earth. He's the possessor of the heavens and the earth. And he's promised to bless me and provide for me. So I I don't need this stuff from the king of Sodom. I I trust him and trust that he's going to provide for me. It, It opens up this conversation. And then the chapter just ends, right? And so let's just kind of pull back here for a second and acknowledge what a weird chapter in the life of Abraham, right? Like why in the world is this in the Bible? What, what in the world does this even mean? Right, well, the good news is that the Bible is not humanity's best thoughts about God. The Bible is God's Word to us. God is the primary author of Scripture who spoke His Word through the human authors in such a way that what He wanted to communicate is what got communicated. Uh, and so the same God who inspired and breathed out and spoke the book of Genesis is the same God who inspired the book of Psalms and the book of Hebrews Uh, where our boy Melchizedek gets talked about again. Uh, We're not left in the dark on this because this isn't the only thing that the Bible has to say about this chapter. Uh, And I want to encourage you to read your Bible this way. Look, the Bible is one big book with one big story all centered on Jesus. And the New Testament authors especially are, are trying to teach us how to read our Old Testaments like they're about Jesus. And so we should follow their example. When, when something gets talk, talked about again and brought up again, that's because God is trying to show us what it means and how we should read it. Let me show you this. Let me show you what I'm talking about. The next place that Melchizedek is talked about in the Scriptures is Psalm 110, verses 1-4. through 4. This will come up on the screen. It says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So David says that Yahweh, the Lord, says to his Lord that he will make him a king and a priest after the order of Melchizedek, that he'll be like Melchizedek. Uh, and so go with me now to Hebrews chapter 7, where this gets explained a whole lot more. And I would say go ahead and, and turn over there, because we're going to spend the rest of our time in this chapter walking through the whole chapter together. But let me read for us first uh, the first 10 verses of Hebrews chapter 7. It says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, "...met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, and to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he's also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever." See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior." In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say, you know, you might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Uh, Are you confused yet? Uh, yeah, Hebrews is a, not an easy book, and so some of this is going to get a little bit heady, but but track with me because I really do believe the author of Hebrews is trying to teach us how to read uh, our Old Testaments here. He is not pulling some magic trick trying to pull a rabbit out of the hat or doing like a find, a, find the Jesus, like a Where's Waldo type deal. He is following clues in the text of Genesis 14 and Psalm 110 itself To make this connection to Jesus because he understands that the whole Old Testament is about Jesus. I mean, think about how weird Melchizedek is in the book of Genesis itself. Every other time a major important character gets introduced in the book of Genesis, what do we get about them? A genealogy telling us who they are and where they come from, right? But we don't get that with Melchizedek. He just shows up here in 14 out of nowhere. Uh, On top of that, every time one of these important characters dies in the book of Genesis, we get, you know, they lived to this age and then they died. But we don't get that about Melchizedek either. He just drops off the stage after chapter 14 and he never appears in the book of Genesis again. Uh, And that's not all. He's explicitly called a king and a priest. And no one else in Israel ever formally held both of these offices. There were many men that looked like it. You know, Adam looked like a king and a priest. Uh, Moses looked like a king and a priest. David and Solomon were kings who looked like priests. But no one in Israel ever formally held the offices of both king and priest. And and so all of these weird things in the text of Genesis itself should make us slow down and kind of perk up our ears and go, I wonder what's going on with this. I wonder why all this stuff is so weird and out of the ordinary and what the author wants me to do with this. I think this is what the author of Hebrews means when he says he's without father or mother or genealogy or beginning of days or end of life. Uh, He's not saying that he literally didn't have a father or mother or that he never was born and that he didn't die. He's saying in the book of Genesis, he's presented in that way where he just shows up and then he disappears just as quickly as he showed up, and that this points us to Jesus. This gives us a picture of Jesus. Melchizedek is not Jesus. But he looks like Jesus, who really is eternal and really does live forever. And so it's these textual clues, and he keeps going. He says, Melchizedek, uh, the name Melchizedek in Hebrew means king of righteousness, and Melchizedek is the king of Jerusalem, of Salem, so think Shalom. And so he's also the king of peace. Uh, Not just that, what did we just learn in Genesis chapter 12? Abraham and his offspring are going to be the blessing to the world, but here Melchizedek is the one blessing Abraham and not the other way around. And Abraham ties to Melchizedek, showing that Melchizedek is superior to him. And he says that the, the tribe of Levi, that what will be the priesthood and the sacrificial system in the people of Israel comes from Abraham. And so Hebrews is saying when he tithes to Melchizedek, it's as if Levi and the priests themselves are tithing to Melchizedek, showing that Melchizedek has a greater priesthood than they do. Now, is your head spinning yet? Uh, Mine definitely is. What we've got so far is that Melchizedek is a king of righteousness. He's the king of peace. Uh, He's a priest of God Most High. And he's greater than Abraham. And his priesthood is greater than the priesthood that will come from Abraham now jump back into Hebrews 7 and verse 11 this is really where we get to the payoff of his argument it says now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood for under it the people received the law what further need would there have been for another priest to arrive after the order to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron for when there is a change in the priesthood Not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unsane, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people Since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. All right, so here's the payoff Melchizedek's story is in the Bible and in the book of Genesis to point us to the fact that we need a better priest and a better king who can actually deal with our sin. We need someone who's like Melchizedek, both a priest and a king, but yet is greater than Melchizedek. And Melchizedek shows up on the scene before the law of Moses and before the priesthood of Levi and the sacrificial system to show us that the promise God made to Abraham, salvation, the the taking of our curse and the sacrifice of sin that would reverse the curse and do away with sin forever is not going to come by the law or by anything that we can do, but by the cross of our better priest, Jesus. I mean, Hebrews said it. The law made nothing perfect. We're not going to be able to save ourselves, but Jesus and His sacrifice can fully and forever deal with our sin because He is our great High Priest. You see, Jesus is our true and great King. The King of righteousness and peace who is in Himself righteousness and peace and can give us His righteousness and bring us into peace with God. Can make us have peace with God. And Jesus is our great High Priest. The High Priest who didn't just make a sacrifice, He became the sacrifice. He offered Himself up once and for all to pay for all of our sins, past, present, and future. He died for our sins, and then He didn't stay dead. He defeated death, rose from the dead, and now He lives forever to intercede for us and serve as our King and our priest on the basis of His indestructible resurrection life as our priest he is the mediator between god and man the one who can stand in the gap and represent us before god and make us right with god and can make god known to us look he is god he can bear all of our burdens and trials and fears and struggles and sins and questions without ever breaking a sweat and yet he became a man he experienced the fullness of all of our weakness and frailty and humanity uh, to the deepest depths. And there's no, other, there's no better priest. No better priest who as God can uphold all of our problems, has all the power in the world to deal with them, and yet as man can sympathize with us to the deepest depths because He has walked through everything that we have and has been tempted in every way that we are except without ever sinning. Listen, no one understands you better than Jesus. No one cares for you better than Jesus. No one is closer to you than Jesus. In the most profound pain and suffering and fears we might walk through, because Jesus walked through our humanity and took on our humanity, He's literally been there. He has been there. He has walked through this before you, and He's walking in it with you at this very moment. Look, He knows. He knows. And He cares. This is what it means for Jesus to be our great high priest that he can sympathize with us and we can go to him and find mercy and grace to help in our time of need but that isn't all that it means for Jesus to be our high priest look again at Hebrews 7 verse 25 it says that because he lives forever he is now able to save us completely fully to the uttermost and he now lives to make intercession for us Listen, for all who trust in Jesus, Jesus has fully paid the debt in full for all of our sins, past, present, and future, so that you would owe for none of them. And he now lives to advocate for you on the basis of his sacrifice forever. Like he's risen from the dead. No one can take him off the throne, no one can remove him as priest, no one can take away his sacrifice. No one can stop Him from advocating for us, from saying, no, I paid for that sin. He's mine. She's mine. Like what sin of yours could the devil bring up that Jesus would not be able to say, sorry, I already paid for that in full. That's weak sauce. You're going to have to do so much better than that. Come on, this is what Jesus has done. He has died in our place for all of our sins past, present, and future, and He now lives to advocate for us on the basis of His sacrifice forever. Why would He change His mind about you now? This is what He's doing for you right now at this very second. Advocating for you. Pleading for you. Praying for you. Interceding for you on the basis of His sacrifice. And this incredible reality is why we sing these glorious truths like when Satan tempts me to despair and he tells me of the guilt within. Well, upward I look and I see Him there who made an end of all my sin. And because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. Because God the just is satisfied to look on Him and pardon me. It's why we sing things like as He stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me. For I am His and He is mine. I am bought with the precious blood of Christ. There's no guilt in life. There's no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus now commands my destiny. There's no power of hell. There's no scheme of man that could ever pluck me from His hand. It's why we rejoice in the truth of Romans 8.33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. And who's to condemn? Jesus is the One who died. More than that, who was raised, who sits at the right hand of the throne of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Listen, this is what Genesis 14 points us to. Jesus. Jesus is the good news. The whole Bible is about Jesus. Genesis is about Jesus. Abraham is about Jesus. Sarah is about Jesus. Melchizedek, is about Jesus. Prophets, priests, and kings are all about Jesus. It's all pointing us to what God has done and is doing to rescue us and bring us back to Himself in Jesus so that we might know Him, enjoy Him, love Him, and worship Him forever. The whole Bible is about Jesus, so when you read the story of Abraham, go to Jesus. When you read the story of Melchizedek, let it draw your heart and your mind up in worship to your great and better priest and king, Jesus. Because that's how God changes us. That's how God transforms us. As we get our eyes on Jesus and we worship Him, the Spirit transforms us from the inside out to love Him and to look more like Him. And so that's exactly what we're going to do. We're going to come to the table and we're going to celebrate that Jesus is our great high priest Melchizedek the priest of God most high he brought out bread and wine to this meal with Abraham we're going to come to the table and take from the bread and cup and celebrate the fact that that was always pointing to the day when Jesus the priest who is God most high would lay down his life and pour out his blood so that we could receive the blessing promised to Abraham We're going to come to the table and celebrate that because Jesus drank the cup of our curse and judgment for our sin in full, that all we will ever know is His blessing and His grace. And we're going to give as Abraham gave of what he had as an offering of worship to God because he knew it was all ultimately God's anyway, and God had given him the victory. We're going to give joyfully of what we have as a response of worship to our great King. And we're going to respond. Look, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus in here this morning, Jesus right now is offering to be your great high priest. He will cancel the record of death that you have racked up against him, the sins that you have committed. He will pay for them in full and make you right with God forever. Look, all you need is your need. If you will come to him in this moment and bring him your sin, he will give you his righteousness. All you need is need, so just come and believe. Trust in what Jesus has done as your great high priest, as your advocate, as your sacrifice, as your priest. We're going to have pastors back there in the corner to pray with you. If you feel like Jesus is moving in your heart and you have believed, then please come talk to us. We want to celebrate that with you. If you feel like Jesus is moving in your heart and you want to believe, come over there and let us pray with you and walk with you through that. If you need to pray or you need to be prayed for, please come over there and meet us. We would love to pray with you. And then finally, we're going to sing. We're going to sing the good news of our salvation. We're going to celebrate that because Jesus is our great high priest, our sins have been paid for in full. There's nothing left that we owe. Uh, there's nothing for us to pay. That full freedom and forgiveness in Jesus is ours. And that our great King Jesus, He knows us. He loves us. He cares for us. He died for us. And He now lives forevermore to advocate and intercede for us. Look, I don't care how well you can sing or not. Let's shed some inhibitions, get after it, and raise our voices in worship to our great King Jesus. He's so worthy of it. Sound good? Let's do it. Let me pray for us and we'll respond and celebrate King Jesus. Jesus, thank You so much for Your grace that God, in such a weird, obscure story about Melchizedek, it's all pointing to how You, Jesus, have been our great High Priest. How You right now are interceding for us, pleading for us on the basis of Your sacrifice. How You have paid the debt for our sins in full. Jesus, as we come to celebrate you now, give us grace to rest in this as we come to your table to know that you poured out your body, you poured out your blood, and you gave of your body so that we could be saved, so that we could experience your blessing and grace and kindness. Jesus, as we sing, stir up our hearts fresh with love for you and trust in you because you're such a great and good king. Jesus, as we come and respond now, help us. Help us to see you and to taste and see that you are good and to rest in the gospel. In your name, amen, amen.